and welcome to another episode of Fully Scored, episode 17. Doesn't time fly fast? As usual, we've got another very exciting episode lined up for you within the next roughly an hour. As I'm joined by two very special guests, we'll have an interviewee and we'll have an analysis. And our pairing today are both composers, but from opposite sides of a very big pond. Later in this episode, I'm going to be joined by Richard Phillips, who's talking about Eric Ball's piece, The Eternal Presence. But before we dissect that piece with Richard, it's my great pleasure to welcome our fourth recipient of the Order of the Founder onto the podcast, and that is William Himes. It was a real privilege to speak to Bill a few weeks ago now about all things Salvation Army music. And of course, with all of these interviews, there's so much more we could have spoken about. And I feel like in some ways we were only scraping the surface of all of Bill's stories and anecdotes that he had to share. Before we start that conversation, though, the observant amongst you may have noticed that we have a brand new presence with a brand new Facebook page. Yes, that's right, we've finally got our own fully scored Facebook page. So if you haven't already, be sure to give that page a follow for all the latest updates on fully scored and some extra bonus content every now and again. It doesn't get more exciting than that. If you haven't as well, follow us on Twitter at fully scored and our Instagram is fully scored also. Makes sense, doesn't it? Oh, and don't forget... You can also leave a review of the podcast on iTunes. Only five stars, naturally. But if you wish to do that, share some podcast love, slap on a five-star review. Happy days. Now, without further ado, it's time to relax. It's time to listen. Grab yourself your favourite tea and your favourite mug and listen to our conversation with William Himes. So, first of all, Let's go back right into history um, and to talk about Baby Bill a little bit. Where were you born and uh, what are some of your sort of earliest memories uh, of your life? Well, I actually have a pretty good what psychologists call eidetic memory in the sense that it goes back a long ways. I can remember vividly to just under two years old. So uh, I have a good memory for things like that. But to answer your question... <clears throat> I was born in Flint, Michigan, which is the home of General Motors, and uh, it's a very industrial town, very strong uh, Salvation Army there. I never lived in Flint. Uh, The reason I was born there was because my parents came from Flint, Michigan, and then they were called to be Salvation Army officers, and while in the training college, um, my mother was expecting me, and uh, back in the day, uh, you you didn't show <laughs> when you were in training college. When you got to that point of your pregnancy that you were actually showing a baby, uh, you went home. Um, it was kind of prudish, I suppose. But so she, she was in training from uh, September to December. And then she went home in January to her home, Flint, Michigan, where I was born in March. And after I was born, then she came back to Chicago rejoined my father at training college where they were commissioned as Salvation Army officers in June. So she had a very truncated uh, education at the training college. But so I was born in Flint, Michigan. And then uh, 
the son of uh, Salvation Army officers, we had several appointments and um, uh, we were, they were all in Michigan, as it turned out, uh, way up in the north in the lumber area of uh, Sheboygan, Michigan, just before the Upper Peninsula. They were there five years and then we came down to the middle of the state in Owasso, Michigan for five years. Uh, and then we moved to Royal Oak, Michigan, which was actually a large enough core that had a youth band, a senior band, singing company, and all that kind of stuff. And by then, I'm 10 years old and really enjoying music in school, but nothing like Salvation Army music. And I really got totally involved there and uh, was playing uh, baritone and euphonium in the youth band. And another young kid was in the core. He was six years older than me, but he also played the euphonium. His name is uh, James Kerno. And uh, so we sort of uh, grew up together in the same core, a little bit apart, but we were both starting to write music and, and experiment with our sounds and stuff like that. And then when I was old enough to come into the senior band, which back then, as young as 14, I could come in, Jim, Kerno, and I were the euphonium section. So we were it. And uh, we've been great close buddies ever, ever since then. So as someone that's uh, been so heavily involved in music education as well, I'm really interested to hear your opinion. How do you think that we continue to keep Salvation Army music making so relevant and engaging to the young people of today? Well, I'll tell you this. Uh, for the last at least 35 years, I teach beginning brass players every Wednesday night at my core. And I love seeing those lights go on. I love seeing the, as they're learning about a, a quaver, they're learning about a flat or a sharp or a meter. And uh, I've been teaching for lo these many decades. I finally now in this year's class have my granddaughter in the class. And uh, she and another girl uh, remind me that I taught their parents in that very same class, <laughs> you know. But I love, uh, teaching kids uh, music and especially brass music because it's a team sport. It's a very subtle way of getting people involved in a group. It's also a way of teaching them a skill that they can use for the rest of their life. I'm 72 and I still play in my core band. And I'm sure there are many people who play who are older than me and they still do a very respectable job um, but whereas I might have played volleyball when I was in high school or even young adult years, I don't play that anymore. I don't have the, the chops to jump up and down and, you know, and who knows how I'm going to land. But I can still play my piano. I can still play the euphonium. I can still participate in a group that, by the way, is multi-generational and has both genders. I mean, what do we have in our society today that puts people together in a band? I was at band practice Wednesday night and um, just down the line from me was a kid who's uh, 16 years old. W where does a 72 year old man and a 16 year old kid find common ground these days? Naturally, places are few and far between. And yet where we're finding common ground is not in a pool hall or in a pub, but it's in a place where we're making music for the king. And not only are we practicing it, but we're gonna bless people with it on Sunday. I mean, there's a instant gratification. You do the effort on Wednesday night and you see the results on Sunday. Where else can you find something like that? I think we need to get back to selling our people on, on what a great thing we've got here. 
uh, it's not that brass bands are passe or becoming antiquated in the United States. They're just taking off. They're just not in the Salvation Army. It's other places that have figured out that brass bands are a great team sport. And it does, you know, if you're, if you're uh, small and skinny, you're not going to play football, but you can play anything in the band. You know, if you're not seven feet tall, you're not going to play basketball either. You know, there are all these limitations to other team sports, but not the team of a brass band or other musical aggregations, the singing company, the songsters. So all these things, I think, are not only a means of bringing people together in a meaningful team, but they're also a means of uh, the end result is blessing people for what we just did. Those many kids that I've started over the years are now in our senior band or they're doing something else uh, in the music sections in the core. And it's so great to see. And that's the thing I, I want to convince uh, the next generation that we have a good thing here and we shouldn't give it up and we shouldn't be sold on the idea that it's an antique because our music is staying relevant in the sense that no it's not going to sound like a praise band you can't make a, a, a cornet sound like a guitar but you can do some things with the sonorities of a band that a guitar can't do and a, a guitar can do something that a cornet can't do they're, they're each and separate in what they do uh, but if you have more than seven people in a praise band you've got mud you got too much, you got too much sound. But in a brass band, you can add more parts as long as it's proportionate. I mean, our core band before COVID was running 44 in the band. It's very inclusive and expansive. Same thing with our songster brigades and our singing companies and things like that. You can, you can allow more people into it. You can be inclusive and you can also um, hang on to them. You know, and you, they're accountable in that group. And, uh, you know, I think of the it, sitting in the band next to these youngsters that they show me their uh, energy and their innovation. And I show them uh, my wisdom and experience. And we trade off. You know, we, we learn something from each other. And uh, that, that we should not be giving up. Great. Thanks for that wisdom there. Very uh, wise words indeed there. So, of course, most people will probably recognise you from your name appearing on the top right-hand corner of their music. Uh, so let's chat a bit about your, your music and your writing. When did you first realise that you wanted to write, or when did you start writing? Well, I would say there are a lot of uh, people who have the desire to write something down. I would say the greatest lie that I hear <laughs> is that everyone has at least one good song in them. That is not true. There are a lot of people who have no songs in them and they don't have the instinct for that. Just like if you left me alone in a living room and say, decorate this, you pick out the colors in the furniture, you're gonna look at a, at a jumble sale when you come in. Um, I, that's not my gift, you know? But I will say that what, what distinguishes a composer or where they start to show potential is when they get an idea and their next thought is, what does that look like? Because a lot of people can jam at the piano and, or, or on a guitar or come up with a song or a line, but uh, the desire in me at the age of, when I first remember this, I was like 10 or 11 years old. I had just a little idea. It was a variation on a hymn tune. 
I think it was the day of victories coming or something like that. But I, I had some some semi quavers thought up in my mind as to how that could fit over the top of it. And uh, my first thought was, what does that look like? So I got some staff paper and I wrote down one semi quaver. Then I wrote down the next one and the next one. They were not connected. They were just, you know, separate semi quavers. And then as I wrote them down, I realized, oh, you could put these four together in a group, you know, but it was that pain and struggle of figuring out how do I make this sound in a notation? What does it look like? And now how do I fix it to make it work? So it started out as a melody. And then I was taking piano lessons as a, you know, a nine, 10, 11 year old. Um, and, um, and I just could hardly wait till we got to the harmony part where both hands are playing at the same time, just even two notes, but it was just so cool to hear harmony. And I remember always um, gravitating toward that. And as soon as I got into harmony, then I started thinking of ideas for the piano. Um, uh, not very ambitious, not very technical, but again, I started to write them down. Uh, and of course, all this time I'm playing a brass instrument. So now I'm playing in school and I'm playing in the core band. And I got this idea for a school band. I thought, I want to write something for a school band, you know, with clarinets and flutes and stuff like that. So I'd go around to a clarinet player and say, show me your music. I want to see what it looks like, you know. So there's this curiosity. Uh, but again, it was all very organic. I wasn't reading any books on it or anything like that. I just wanted to try to figure it out for myself. And that's really how I got started. And, and I just sort of stayed with it. I listened very carefully to things. I listened to the great music of Eric Ball and Ray Stebbin Allen and Leslie Condon and people like that, Dean Goffin. And, but I never would study their scores. I would just listen to it and say, what are they doing there? How are they doing that? And I just sort of let it um, percolate in my head and, and influence then what I'm doing. But I never tried to write something like Leslie Condon or like Ray Stebbin Allen. But I could tell you where the influences are, or, or where they they taught me something, and I employed it in another way. And uh, anyone that knows anything about your music will know that you can quite successfully turn your hand to pretty much any sort of style or genre. And uh, I've had pieces published in so many different styles. Is there a particular style that you enjoy writing in the most? You know, I don't have any particular uh, style. I, I, I'm mindful of the fact that 90% uh, of the music we would use in Salvation Army bands and songsters over here is something that's used in Sunday morning worship. Uh, we don't have two meetings anymore in a lot of our, most of our core in the United States. So it's that Sunday morning time of worship. Uh, which uh, the one good thing is that it's uh, not typecast now. You don't have to do the uh, slow, sleepy things for Sunday morning and then the more caffeinated things for Sunday night. Uh, it's, it's all one meeting. So if you want to do something that's lively to start out the meeting, you can do that. You know, it's, it's not typecast as a quiet or a loud meeting or anything like that. But, um, but I'm mindful of the fact that that's where most of our music goes. So um, as I look over uh, in this time of COVID, I did a database of, of my published works because I thought I had maybe 200 things published uh, over the course of time. But when I did the database, I realized it's actually over 400. I just lost track. Um, some things published in many, many different forms, obviously, uh, you know, it was a solo, it was a band piece, whatever. But, um, 
But as I look over the body of like the band pieces, the large majority of what I've written are congregational accompaniments or pieces that were published as band pieces. But when I first wrote them, it was to accompany a congregational song. Even the festival fanfare on St. Francis, which is in the festival series, I wrote that for a Chicago staff band Thanksgiving festival so that the audience could sing all creatures of our God and King. And I had the trombones and cornets antiphonally up in a balcony and, you know, it was, but it was written to accompany their singing. And uh, the vast majority of my um, published works, oh, probably 160 of them are congregational accompaniments, even things like uh, Prayer of Thanksgiving in the Triumph series, an accompaniment. Burning, Burning was originally an accompaniment. Um, uh, there, there, there are many like that, that you see as a, uh, a standalone, you'd think it's just a hymn setting, but when it was written, it was written to actually, um, it's it, to use psychology on an audience to get them excited about the idea that they are now going to sing, and we're all going to sing together, and you're going to be blessed by it, trust me. And so the whole purpose of the, of the setting is, first of all, to give them a very confident in introduction, and to say, okay, one, two, ready, sing, to put the melody right in their face so they can hear it, see it, know right where it's going. They can start to sing it with a confidence. And by the second verse say, there, see, you've got it. You can do this now. And they get more excited in it. And then by the third or fourth verse, however long it is, you might do a little key change just to elevate it a bit. So that by the end of that congregational accompaniment, these people, are blessed because they were part of a worship experience. And um, so that's, that's something I, I really enjoy doing. I really like psyching out a congregation and saying, come on, come along with me. You can sing this, you can do this. And when you're sitting down to write a piece, you know, of all these sort of different styles, whether it's a major work, something like Ultra Chrome, New Frontier, or a solo like Jubilant, a vocal piece, Isaiah 40, or even like a Unity series sort of piece, like A Quiet Moment, uh, and or, or even a jazz piece, like So Glad, there are so many. Uh, do you approach them in the same way, or do you have a different sort of method of getting into music for different uh, the different styles you're writing in? Well, I... I listen to a great variety of music and I still have an antique thing. It's called an iPod, uh, but I like it because it has, I have two weeks worth of music on there and I haven't used up half of it. But what I love is shuffle when you hit shuffle play and you never know what's coming up next, but it's all the stuff I've dumped on there over the years. And if you were to put my iPod on shuffle, you're gonna hear John Rutter and the Cambridge Singers. You're gonna hear um, a solo guitar from Argentina. You're gonna hear some guy play Bach preludes. You're gonna hear a fair bit of 20th century Russian music, Shostakovich, Prokofiev, uh, people like that. I listen to a great variety of music. I don't intentionally try to assimilate it, but I know it, it makes its mark on me. Often it shows me what's possible. You know, you hear sounds and you say, wow, that's a really interesting sound. But again, I would never study that score. I would just listen to it and say, how can that, that impact on me? So to answer your question, I'm, I'm very old fashioned when it comes to uh, writing music. I'll, I'll have a lot of ideas sort of mulling about in my head. And then I have this blank piece of paper. Yes, paper, I still use that and I use a pencil. 
And uh, often what I'll write are just little blurbs, you know, or I'll take a, a tune or a melodic idea and I might say, okay, now what does that look like upside down? What does that look like backwards? What, you know, what, what, what can I do with this tune motivically or what? And then I'll also listen to it and say, how does it, how does it sit? In other words, what kind of texture, if I were a painter, am I gonna paint this like Picasso or am I gonna paint it like Cezanne? You know, there, there are different styles. I'm gonna use muted sounds. Am I gonna use, you know, something uh, or am I gonna be Andy Warhol? You know, it's, it's, the, the, it's limitless. But eventually you sort of settle in on, well, with this, this tune, it really sits best. And that's the thing with Salvation Army, we're always dealing with an existing tune usually. Um, uh, that sort of helps influence you. And then of course, uh, the text, what is it saying? And that influences the mood as well. Um, as far as styles and things, I, I don't know how I get into that, but I'll, I'll write down you know, these little blurbs and then I'll write down things in a two or three line score when I get the band piece going. And sometimes it'll have things scratched out where like, yeah, good, but not good enough. And let's skip to there, go to here. And then when I get that all done, I might do another compressed score that's now neat and pretty, you know, that goes without, without stop and it's now cohesive. And then from there, I'll do the full score. And uh, most of the time I would even, with a big work, I, I even still do that in pencil. But nowadays, once I have that compressed score, now I can put it into a Sibelius or Finale. But I would never start there. I would never start with a, a computer notation because they make everything sound good, even if it isn't, you know. And, and uh, I, I, like to, I, I like to feel the notes go on the page. And I sit at the keyboard and I'm, I'm mulling over these sounds uh, over and over again. It's a slow, arduous process. Um, maybe people can't relate to that, but it works for me. That's what I have to do. Now, my last question, so whilst we're talking about your composition, is, uh, well, again, maybe quite a challenging question to answer. Uh, but what piece of advice would you give to any budding composers out there listening and that, that want to write like yourself? Well, I would say um, it's quite a natural thing for um, an early composer. I won't say young composer because people start at different ages. But um, uh, what I would say is uh, uh, have a desire to, to write down what you're thinking, you know, learn how to, to notate it. Don't use a lot of shortcuts. Uh, by that, I mean, don't go right to the computer. Uh, you know, play it on the piano or write it on, on paper uh, and, and then seek um, feedback. That was one of the things I did. I, I, our bandmaster at our core was a very gifted musician at Royal Oak, uh, the late Max Wood. And he was a great influence on Jim Kerno and myself because we could hand him our scores and he had perfect pitch. So he could look at the score and hear it in his head and he could see all the bad and all the good, but he would uh, then take out his pen and he, you know, he'd look it over and he'd write all these comments and then he'd give the score back to you. And he would circle things and he would say, you know, you're wearing out this idea or, um, you know, too much of this, or you've got a clash in this chord here, stuff like that, just very practical things. But his best advice was to say, now don't go back and keep rewriting this piece and trying to make it better and better. Take what you've learned from this and now apply it to your next piece. I think part of it was he wanted to see 
did we have more than one idea in our head? Was there any more where that came from? And uh, so uh, that's advice I would give to people is if you're writing something, then give it to somebody who has some insight in it. They don't have to necessarily be a composer. They could be like Max, who is a really good musician and could look it over and say, you know, based on what I'm seeing here, uh, this could be better. And the, the third thing I would say is listen to what they have to say. Because, uh, you know, I've had people send me scores and say, um, you know, tell me what you think of this. And they want me to say, this is the most wonderful thing since the Holy War. I'm absolutely amazed. Uh, that's what they want me to say. But when I say, well, you know, you're, you're really kind of uh, going around and around with this one idea. And if they say to me, yeah, well, see, you just don't understand what I'm trying to do there. <laughs> That's when I know they're never going to make it. No, I understand what they're trying to do. You don't understand how bad this is, you know, or how be ready to take some criticism. And, um, and I even used a, a modern example. Um, recently, um, Philip Cobb recorded my uh, Caprice for cornet. When I wrote it, it was for the Norwich band when they were coming over to England years ago and for their soloist, Randy Cox. And so I wrote the solo and they played it on tour and stuff like that. And then we used it because he played in the staff band. We used it at a Chicago staff band festival. And I asked a friend of mine who is a cornet player himself, not a composer, never written a note in his life. But I said to him, hey, what did you think of that solo? And he said, two words, too long, too long. And you know what? I listened to him. And I thought about it and I thought, you know, you're right. That is too long. And I went through that whole score. He's not, I could have said to him, who do you think you are? What great masterpiece have you written, buddy? How many pieces have you published? Zero. But no, I listened to his words too long. And he's the consumer. He's the guy that had to sit there and listen to it. And I thought, but he's a good musician. There's something to what he said. And I looked at that score, you know, I cut a good two, maybe two and a half minutes out of that solo because I realized, yeah, I don't need to go back and say that again, or this goes on a bit before he comes in. I could cut that out. Okay, now we got something that's a little more manageable. And I thank him to this day for that input. So my advice to composers is write down your ideas, seek advice, seek reaction and input and listen to them and then Go back and, 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 and keep perfecting what you've got. Keep trying. Wise words indeed. Thank you for that. We could talk for days and I'd love to, to hear even more, but uh, I'm afraid time is of the essence, really. So I'm going to just ask you one more question, sure. uh, if that's OK. And uh, that question is, uh, in your retirement now, how do you continue to use music and your faith to tell people about God? Well, that's a good question. Um, I music is still um, a very uh, central uh, element to my life. Uh, every day, uh, I, I sort of have a leisurely breakfast now. I don't have to rush off to work, but once I go down to my office, which is down in our, our basement, but it's a, it's a large office with a keyboard and all the materials I need, uh, I can be there for eight hours straight just to either uh, carrying on correspondence, doing editing. I still edit 
uh, for the Central Territorial Music Department, uh, their publications, the Hallelujah Choruses and things like that. Um, and I still have been writing on assignment. Uh, usually uh, they ask me to write a couple of those arrangements in that series. And I also write a couple of things for uh, the American Ensemble series. And then as I just take on projects that I just wanna do or I've always wanted to uh, spruce up, uh, I've got um, in my archive as I was working on this and seeing what pieces I've done and getting it organized and stuff, I thought this piece would have a second life if it were written as a songster piece, or this piece could see the light of day in publication if I wrote it this way, you know, some doing some revising uh, of things or some updating. Um, so I'm spending my time that way. And then at my core, I'm still uh, vitally uh, active in, in things there. I teach my beginners every week, as I said, I, I play in the core band. Our songsters are just starting to function in the next two weeks now. We're coming out of our pandemic. I, I have had both vaccinations, so I'm safe. And um, so uh, we're doing things that way. I lead a men's Bible study every Monday evening, been doing that for years. And uh, so I'm keeping really quite busy. And then there are new projects too. People will write and say, uh, you know, I'd like to commission you to write a piece for such and such. And if I think it's feasible or doable, or I can schedule it, then I'll, I'll take it on just for the sheer challenge of trying to get the creative juices flowing. So I have a couple of those projects that are coming up in July and August and, uh, and uh, a few editorial deadlines, uh, even this week, I'm, I'm rushing to finish up. But uh, life is good, life is busy and uh, continues to be very fulfilling. And, um, and also with family in the area, with my daughter and son living 10 miles either way and uh, the grandchildren, that's, that's, uh, that's great stuff. It's a great time to be alive. So to finish off our interview, uh, as with all our guests, I have a few quick fire questions. And uh, well, there's no other way to describe these other than the descent into madness. Some of them start off quite simple and are hopefully a nice quick fire sort of one word okay. answers. And at the end, um, we've got some slightly more unusual questions that in all the interviews you've given, I don't think you'll have been asked before. That's my challenge anyway. <laughs> so first question, favorite Salvation Army band piece? Oh boy, probably the Holy War, just because it was so eye-opening. I, I, I heard about it and I imagined what it would be. And then when I heard it, it was completely different than anything I could have imagined. Have you got a favorite symphony? Oh, well, I love the Shostakovich Fifth. And uh, how about a favorite passage of scripture? Oh, goodness. Um, well, my favorite uh, scripture verses from Philippians, it says, for God is at work within you, helping you to do what he wants, and then helping you to obey him. That's from the Living Bible, but I really like that translation. And a slightly broader question now, what's your favorite book of the Bible? For practical Christianity, uh, that's very succinct, the book of James, very useful. Right now, our men's Bible study is in the book of John, and it's fantastic, just on so many different levels, but uh, where Jesus is shown to be so human and so God, it's, it's really, and it's the reflections of an old man. He's now written this book decades after Jesus has ascended. And so there's a lot of conclusions that he's drawn since then that he puts in there. That book is full of retrospective and that, that retrospective wisdom is so good. 
Now, something I always notice about your music is that you love to use a slightly more unusual Italian term every now and again. <laughs> Have you got a favourite uh, Italian musical expression of all time? Oh, gee, we used to make up fake Italian uh, <laughs> terms, you know, like if we really wanted somebody to murder a piece, we'd say uh, molto crucifando. <laughs> but no, I, I like, you know, the happier terms like uh, uh, jubiloso, gajamente, anything has to do with joyfully. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, that's about as good as it, I can do for you. Now, if you could snap your fingers and magically uh, transport yourself to anywhere in the world and not have to quarantine, where would you go first? I've been very Paulinian, you know, in whatever state I am to be content. I'm always happy where I am. But uh, yeah, uh, places I've never been, the Riviera, I think, would be a fascination for me. Uh, recently, we were in the Holy Land. That was fantastic. But probably, I would say someplace I've never been before, but not Antarctica. If you had to become an Olympic athlete, what sport would you go for gold in? Uh, do they have an event in talking? Uh, no, probably not. Um, I, I like the javelin. Uh, javelin. I have no reason for it. I just like it. Fair enough. That's, that's reason enough. Right. And so now the descent into madness for some of these next questions. Have you got a favorite terrain to walk on? Um, I love the mountains of Colorado. Are you for or against socks with sandals? Oh, yeah, I would, I would say I'm against the socks with sandals. I don't wear sandals, but I would be, if I wore them, I wouldn't have socks. Fair enough. If you're trying to impress someone with your culinary skills, what meal would you cook for them? Uh, uh, to use your dialect, boiling hot water. <laughs> no, uh, I'm good with a barbecue. I could, I could barbecue on the, uh, uh, you know, like steaks or something like that. I'm pretty good with that. Nice, sounds delicious. Um, now, would you like to play a hypothetical tournament of table tennis? Uh, I'd, I'd rather do it realistically, but uh, if I had to, I could, I could hypothetically play it. Great. Well, then all you've got to do is I'm going to give you two names and you've got to say who you think would win in a table tennis match. Oh, so okay. First draw, John Cage versus Abraham Lincoln. Oh, I think Lincoln, because he'd have a bigger... Uh, serve being so tall okay next matchup william booth versus pablo picasso um uh i think i think booth because uh who was the other pablo picasso mm. oh yeah because for him the ball probably wouldn't exist you know excellent so that brings us to our grand finale uh, abraham lincoln versus william booth who would win the final Oh, boy. Yeah, I think Booth would win because he'd set it up with some oration that would totally distract Lincoln. Then while he's pondering it, he'd whack the ball and get it past him. Excellent. Final three questions. If zoos operated like supermarkets, which animal would you purchase? I'd probably get the sloth because they're, they're no trouble. Okay. Uh, what do you get if you drop a piano down a mine shaft? <laughs> I don't know. A flat minor. A flat minor. There we go. <laughs> and final question. Um, 
I'm now going to grab two objects randomly from the room around me and hit them together. Can you identify what the two objects I'm hitting together are? Uh, one's a rock and I don't know what the other one is. Oh, one of them was a 160 gigabyte iPod Classic and the other was some bergamot and L-grade scented hand cream. Oh my goodness. So, there you go. <laughs> that, that's iPod abuse. You should I be know, arrested. Sorry. Sorry about that. Well, thank you ever so much for your time and talking to us. It's been a real privilege speaking to you and hearing a bit about your life, about your composition and uh, your good sense of humour. So thank you very much. Good to be with you, Matthew. Thank you for your time. Well, thanks, Bill. It's been great to speak to you. And uh, we'll hear from Bill again a little bit later in the podcast when we put your mind to the test in Band Mastermind. Anyway, now it's Analysis Ahoy! Yes, it's time for our analysis. I'd like to welcome Richard Phillips onto the podcast, who's going to be speaking and dissecting and talking about the music and the message behind Eric Ball's The Eternal Presence. Before we look at the piece, um, the piece based on Psalm 139, verses 7 to 11, which read, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. And that's taken from the new international version. So thank you ever so much, Richard, for joining us today. Uh, my first question about the piece would be, uh, could you explain a little bit about the background of this piece? Uh, thank you, Matthew. Well, it's purely based on what you've just read. That is the background of the piece. Um, this, this idea of there being uh, an eternal presence, that God is always with us, is prevalent all the way through this. He was 65 when he wrote this piece. Um, so he'd gone through the turmoil of um, life. I expect you know that he made a fairly serious uh, uh, decision uh, halfway through his working career with uh, resigning from officership. And he wanted to follow a more spiritualist path. He got through that period of unease in his career and so I guess at this point uh, he was he was well settled in his own mind. When you think this piece came um, something like 25 years after Resurgum, very much towards the end of his very fertile period of his, his composing career um, and the experience of his um, his life, his spirituality, his spiritual awareness is uh, is really absorbed into this piece. And we'll look into detail exactly how it uh, the music does that in a moment. Before we look into the music uh, and how, how Eric Ball does that with the music, I'd just like to ask you a little bit about uh, where you first came in contact with this piece. The first time I heard it was uh, when soon after Eric died, died in 1989, and uh, the staff songsters and the staff band recorded a tribute um, it was a record in those days, record and cassette um, of Eric's music. And um, it was one of the uh, items that 
that uh, Norman chose to vocalise. So it was an unusual kind of item. And, uh, and so the melodic lines, uh, the ISS sang whilst the band were playing. And it was later on, um, back in uh, 1999, when I recorded the piece with, uh, with Enfield. And um, been always been a firm favourite since that first recording with the ISS and the ISB. And, uh, and I wanted to, to do it uh, with, uh, with a core band myself conducting to give me a chance to put my own stamp on it. And uh, and since then, since the Enfield recording, I've uh, I've also done it with uh, with Kettering. Excellent. And that recording that you mentioned there of uh, Eternal Brass, we'll be listening to little snippets of that throughout the analysis to hear some um, examples of what you say. So uh, now let's delve into the score and look through the music itself. First of all, we have uh, the introduction, and we have some references to the old Wesleyan tune. And can it be? Could you explain to us what happens uh, in this introduction and the significance of that tune weaved in here? Um, well, that, uh, that is the start uh, of the imprisoned spirit uh, and uh, those words, long my imprisoned spirit lay. But before then, we have, um, we have the opening sequence um, where the words are absolutely straight in. There's no kind of warming up, there's nothing. It's just straight in, still, still with thee. And um, those words, that rhythm is utilised um, over and over again in this piece right throughout. Um, so that's a one to, one to kind of uh, keep hold of. So the very first, the very four, first four bars, um, it's almost, you know, it's, it's a segment of the tune. Um, still, still with thee, still with thee. You can, you can almost put words to that, um, you know, in, in, in just by using that first line. Um, interesting moment is the pianissimo in bar five. Um, the it's a strange thing that sometimes when you have more people playing in a band, the quieter it sounds, and uh, because it's it's much more blended. So we've got we've got an opening four bars here that's marked at mezzo piano, and then we have a diminuendo, and then bar five pianissimo. But the but the whole band is playing. And, and it is actually possible to get that pianissimo quieter than when less players are playing. Um, so that's that's just a little point of uh, the sonorousness, the sound at that point of a full band um, is is sometimes a little less stark than than having less players playing. So there's a lovely moment there in bar five where the pianissimo is just to draw you into the music. Okay, that's that's what that does there. And then we have a kind of an opening out, um, two bars before letter A, for example. There's a crescendo there, and then we have quite a, uh, a lovely moment uh, at letter A. Um, we're still on the still, still with me. I, I am with thee. Um, and that rhythm is there. The trombones, I've got the tune there. The, the trombone is, is lighter sounding than a euphonium. And, uh, and so you get the clarity of that chord. Um, whereas if the euphonium was up playing uh, the high G, F, G, E flat, um, that, that would cloud the chordal sequences through there a little more. So it's a lovely clear picture, still, still with me. And that is, again, being pressed home all the time.
And then the next eight bars is a very important motive. Um, and uh, that's this is the, the ethereal theme. Um, and uh, this is the presence. This is the eternal presence. This has a, a kind of um, a spiritualness to it. Uh, it sounds like it could be the, the spirit passing through the air. Um, and Eric Ball at this point has requested that uh, a soprano uh, sing this. Interestingly enough, when we recorded it with the ISS and the ISB, uh, Jackie Proctor sang that moment. And it was so, so well matched to her voice. Um, it, she just sat on that. And it was just stunning, just stunning. And uh, that comes three times in the piece. And uh, just kind of uh, uh, reminding us that the spirit is always there. You're never going to get away from this. And uh, he's, he's, the way he brings that into the piece, and the number of times he brings it in, uh, it's there to remind us. So we've got this uh, lovely moment here uh, in the high cornets, joined by the horns. Triple piano. Don't see that very often. Uh, in brass band music and that then leads us into the first section the imprisoned spirit And, uh, and you're right, the, the words by Wesley here. Um, this is a, this, the subject of this music is trapped. Um, he wants to do other things. Uh, he wants to enjoy life. Um, and uh, maybe he's thinking to himself that, uh, you know, if he enjoys life, the spirit will go away. Um, when in fact, it's quite the opposite. So it's in C minor thick chords, the second trombone's on a low E flat, which is the third of the chord. Um, so the texture is very thick here. And uh, we have a very high euphonium floating on a top, top G, uh, longed my imprisoned spirit lay. And uh, very intense, the euphonium, in that kind of range. Um, so you can feel the impassioned uh, music moments, how, 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 how much uh, the composer wants to tell us that, uh, you know, wants to tell us about the eternal presence. And um, also that represents the yearning of the, of the subject. Uh, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, far bound in sin and nature's night. And uh, there's somebody who's in the, who's in a dark place. And um, so it's a, it's a intense moment in the music. Um, before we go into letter B. I should just say at this point, for those listening at home, you may find it useful to follow along a uh, score with us, which will be available on the Salvation Army Music Index. And something really interesting I've noticed on the score through that uh, opening movement of the imprisoned spirit is the euphonium line actually has the words printed underneath the melody that it's playing. How uh, sort of unique is that that actually the words are physically printed 
on the music for a Salvation Army band part rather than being yeah. referenced to a songbook. I think that that's a good indication of how much Eric wanted us to understand the, the, what he was trying to say here. And um, his, his whole approach to composition is uh, through melodic line. He's, he's a very much a, a melody writer and uh, he doesn't go for the kind of the, the loud effects um, that don't have any kind of line of music to them. And um, I suppose this is why I'm kind of drawn to it because I'm I, I, I kind of sympathy with the same, same effects really. Um, so melodic line is very much uh, an important composing tool to Eric and uh, and to put the words there just absolutely make sure that um, you're thinking of the second verse of that song rather than and can it be that I should gain uh, so I think it's it's a point of clarity that uh, that he's put those words there so that takes us on to section b where once again the music builds and uh, gains a real intensity um, Mark's Poco Animato above the score. Could you talk us through what happens during this section B to C? Yeah, well, as you can see, looking at the music, we have some uh, interesting cross rhythms here. And um, a, a, lovely, a lovely soaring line, um, but it's written with a great deal of unease, to sound uneasy. And if you look at the harmonic construction of this chord at B, we're in the chord of C minor, and the first note of the solo cornet uh, part and the trombone is an A flat. Well, an A flat doesn't appear in the chord of C minor. So what's that? What what that is creating is a lot of tension. In addition to that, the um, the the rhythm of this melodic line at B is quavers, and um, that is against an accompaniment of triplets. So that again is another technique that Eric's used um, to create tension in the music. This um, pattern here, if you look at the solo cornet part and the trombone part, it's written in triplets really, but in a duplet rhythm. So the three notes are quite important and the next three although it's a cross rhythm yeah and you see that and that technique he uses later on uh, on page 40 uh, of the score uh, when we're into the last movement we move on to the animato pure animato so again the tension is building and this is the first time in the piece that really the band has had chance to Get their teeth stuck into this the approach to this is is snappy it's aggressive um, that very first note in the solo cornet uh, in the pure animato absolutely short Dun, da, da. very articulate that rhythm and a lot of uh, energy needs to go into that and, and it's helped by the crescendo in the percussion and the rest of the band and they they really kind of clip that first note of the pure animato and the same again two bars later Again, the same rhythm, lots of aggression in that rhythm, lots of spikiness, and the, um, the snare drum really can kind of drive that crescendo and rip into that last note uh, to really give this, give that impression that uh, there's anger here, um, that this this uh, this subject is frustrated, not uh, feeling at ease 
about this uh, um, negative life that he's trying to live. So a lot going on here, but then let us see, we come back to that rhythm, still with thee, still with thee. And that's in the coordinates and the trombos. It's a way of calming the music down as if the Lord is putting us uh, putting his hand over us and saying, you know, I'm here, I'm still with you, I want to I want to calm you, I want to take away your anxiety that uh, that we've just experienced. But then we move on again to a few bars later and these triplets come back in the cornets to say, I'm having none of it. Yeah, you can say still with thee and I've felt calm for a moment, but then I'm so angry and I'm so distressed and turmoiled that uh, you know you haven't calmed me yet. And so the, the, the crescendo there and bent back into the triplets are saying that uh, I'm still fighting and you haven't got there yet. And so the euphonium and basses come in again, longed my imprisoned spirit lay. And that's repeated again before section D. So a lot of unease and the reminder that we're still still with thee um, didn't really penetrate uh, the subject at the moment and um, and so he's carrying on with this turmoil life of his. takes us to section D where the music's marked moderato and uh, fortissimo across the whole band there and again we have a real moment of uh, turmoil and angst the music sounds uh, before it dies again uh, down to letter E. Could you talk us through what the transition is throughout this period? Yes we're leading into another reminder that uh, the Lord is still with us uh, that his presence is eternal Okay, and uh, and to get from the height of unease to that point, he's, he's got to make a dramatic moment. And again, we're, we're using the same scoring techniques as before in the triplets and the duplets, except uh, it's the other way around this time. So the cornets here have got the triplets and the duplets, the semiquavers, are in the accompaniment features. Uh, so he's very cleverly there switched the rhythms um, still having the same uh, effect of the tension and the unease and uh, if you kind of take away the uh, the variation of the cornet line in D and euphonium line in D we get to a point where that is a almost a repeat of longed mind prison and then it's a way of climbing down from this fortissimo as you said uh, fortissimo moments very big moment there um, the, the, the rhythm loosens about eight bars in, um, halfway through page 30, and uh, the triplets in the solo coordinates become duplets, and the semiquavers in the accompaniment become triplets, so they're slower, uh, and you can see the whole thing. He's very cleverly uh, loosened the rhythm to draw the music down, to bring it down, uh, the pitch is getting lower in the solo cornice as well, so we're, we've had a high point, dramatic, loosening rhythm, 
lowering the coordinates, lowering the euphonium to coming to uh, a point uh, to lead in at letter E with still, still with the. So he's used a number of compositional techniques to, uh, to take us from unease to calm. <laughs> So in section E, as you just said, we hear once again reference to that opening melody, Still Still With Thee, though this time approached in quite a different way to the beginning. There's a sort of a tenderness to the tune in the solo corners, but there's still some unsettlement perhaps in that bass part marked staccato there. Could you talk us through this section E? Yeah, well, you're, you're absolutely right. You nearly stole my thunder there. Uh, <laughs> well done on your research. But... Um, you're exactly right. There is a tenderness here. Um, it's a solo, one on parts on the cornets. It's a trio, um, one on trombones, um, and this kind of uh, spiky bass line. Um, I, I think the unease comes a little later. Um, this is a this is a, a lovely reminder again that still still with the then bar four when we get to um, uh, the poco accelerando, the music becomes uh, darker. Um, trombones come in, the basses of the euphonium have got a, 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 quite a, a line there, um, and the triplets and the semiquavers are back with us. So again, we have four bars of, as you say, tenderness, which is lovely. Uh, but again, the, the unease is still there, it's not been suppressed yet, and um, that is shown by the Pocoa Chalorando. And then, would you, you know, four bars later, it's like we have another go. There is a horn kind of presence there that uh, takes away a little more of the tenderness than we had prior to this. But uh, it's almost like another go, and the horns are there, and the and then the euphoniums and first baritones are there to remind us that you haven't got me yet, mate. And then we come to this end of this section uh, before a link into the ethereal tune again. on to as you said the ethereal tune uh, is this approached exactly the same as it was the first iteration or is there some slight differences here yeah some differences in scoring it's a tone lower to start with and instead of the horns coming in in bar five uh, it's the trombone now trombones and horns are very interchangeable uh, as a scoring technique we will see that later um, a high trombone can sound very much like a horn and uh, and so horns and and uh, trombones that they're a good they're a good marriage um, if you're learning scoring, um, particularly if the trombones are in a higher range, um, it's hard almost to tell the difference. So he's used the trombones as the the entry in bar five, uh, and needs the horns uh, fresh to play the entry before the lead up to G. The lead up to G is quite interesting. 
we have a still still with thee in the horns and the flugelhorn and then we have a, a slight like a fanfare it's not a fanfare it's more like a last post kind of feel about it it's a, it's a pronouncement leading into the second into the second movement and first cornets and trombones have got this unison b flats with this rhythm and very much makes me think of an announcement being made with the buglers play um, and that announcement is to come at letter g Thanks, Richard. We'll be picking up with the second half of that analysis and seeing where the music and the message goes in our next episode. So join us then. But now it's time to head to a newish segment in the podcast, and that is Band Mastermind at Home. I've read CD program notes for you to guess the piece I'm talking about. And last episode, we even had an excerpt from a piece of music that you had to guess. Well, we're spicing it up once more for this episode, and I'm going to read some score notes. And your job, as the listener, is to work out what piece I'm talking about from the score notes that I'm going to read. If you think you know the answer, tweet us on Twitter, Instagram us on Instagram, and comment on Facebook. First one get to mention in the next episode and maybe an honourable runner-up who knows now talking about mentions I must mention last episode's winners of Bandmaster Mind at Home drumroll please our winner guessing correctly that the piece of music played was William Himes's Festival Fanfare on St Francis oh that's a mouthful was Andrew Wainwright. Congratulations, Andrew, on being the winner. I must also say that our runner-up, Nicholas Brill, takes home the extra bonus brownie points, correctly guessing the CD that the excerpt was taken from, and that was the Household Troops CD recording, Himes Revisited. Well done to both. Now, without further ado, here are your score notes for this episode's and mastermind at home conundrum. The work is based on St John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. A passage which surely covers the creation, the coming of Christ, his atonement, as well as expressing that ethereal quality of timelessness surrounding the eternal. One tends to think of anything eternal as stretching into the future, but John takes us back to the Genesis period, placing the eternal God and his standards as someone and something that has existed for all time and beyond the beyond. This concept of the eternal defies human analysis. Indeed, even the writers of the scriptures and gospels find restrictive man-made vocabulary shackling. John and the writers of Genesis nevertheless presenting their thoughts of infinity with the ambiguous but telling statement in the beginning. The expression of God through the pages of history is an ongoing and progressive revelation. 
a song which is eternal and infinitely broader than measure of man's mind. As our colleagues in the Anglican Church quote, As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. If you think you know what piece they are the score notes for, then let us know. But now, it's time to welcome William Himes back to put his mind to the test in Band Mastermind. Now, Bill, you have one minute and 30 seconds to answer as many questions as you can. So uh, are you willing to accept the challenge and play Band Mastermind? I am willing. Excellent. Well, then, in that case, your time starts now. Name one of the three festival series pieces Eric Silverberg has had published. The World for God. Correct. Which band did Kenneth Downey write his variations on Majesty for? I would guess and say Boscom. Oh, that's incorrect, I'm afraid. Which Wagnerian opera does Elsa's procession to the cathedral derive from? Lohengrin. Correct. How many issues per year is the general series produced? Three. Correct. What is the name of the recording engineer who recorded and produced the international staff band recordings from 1978 through to the mid-2000s? Brian Hilson. Correct. What year was Ray Bowes appointed international staff bandmaster? <laughs> Um, 19, uh, 1980? Uh, incorrect, I'm afraid. Colin Woods was appointed bandmaster of the Melbourne Staff Band in 1969, but what year did he retire from that position? Hmm, I'll guess to say 1990. Uh, incorrect, but very close. Next question, how many staff bands did ISB 120 feature? Eight. Correct. Which head of music editorial was called the architect of Salvation Army music? Slater. Uh, that's incorrect, I'm afraid. We'll go back to that answer in a minute. In what, uh, in what, what does parendendosi mean in music? Uh, dying away. Correct. And uh, final question. Since 1975 until its conclusion in 2005, what colour was the front cover of the festival series? It was a royal blue. Absolutely correct. So that gives you a grand total of seven. Just to go through the um, answers that you didn't quite get there, Ken Downey wrote his variations on Majesty for the Melbourne Staff Band. Uh, Ray Bowes was appointed the ISB Bandmaster in 1975. Ah. And Colin Woods retired from uh, being Bandmaster of the Melbourne Staff Band in 1994. And that final question, uh, one of the final questions, which head of music editorial was the uh, known as the architect of Salvation yeah. Army Music was Frederick Hawkes. Oh, Hawkes. I believe yeah. Richard Slater was known as the father of Salvation Army yeah. Music. Yeah, I, and I probably would have been wrong again. I probably would have said Goldsmith as my second choice. But yeah, that's good. Well, a score of seven really is pretty excellent for band mastermind there, Bill. So uh, that puts you in fourth place on our leaderboard, which is a very good score indeed. Hot on the heels of Paul Shazza Sharman. But unfortunately, in not-so-positive news, that does bring us to the end of today's episode of Fully Scored. Once again, thank you ever so much to Bill and Richard for giving up your time 
as I said earlier, we'll be hearing from Richard in the next episode to complete that analysis of the Eternal Presence. Thanks also, as always, go to our editor and producer, Simon Gash, for knitting together these conversations in a patchwork of podcastery. And of course, thank you to you, the listener, for giving up your time to listen to this episode. And I really do hope that you take something away from these podcast episodes. Uh, If you're active in making Salvation Army music at the moment, some real enthusiasm and a reminder for the reasons that we do it. Or perhaps if you're not somebody that's involved in Salvation Army music making, an understanding of the reasons why we play the music that we do and the message behind that music. I really hope and pray that uh, this will be uplifting, especially for those in the UK that aren't able to play at the moment, for that when we are able to play, we do that with renewed enthusiasm uh, for the right reasons. Anyway, don't forget to follow our brand new Facebook page if you want to be kept up to date with the latest on the Fully Scored podcast and even those little bonus nuggets of extra features. Ooh, how exciting there. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram, Why not give us a tweet or a comment and uh, tell us about something you'd love to hear on a future podcast episode. We'd love to get that conversation started. Don't forget you can share this podcast with your friends, your family, your foes, your family pets, anyone really that you think might enjoy some of the conversations we've had. Anyway, that's enough of me rambling. Stay safe, take care of yourselves, and I'll see you next episode. Goodbye, and God bless. Thank you.